I don't believe that um, you see randomness in nature. I don't think we see randomness in God's created order. I don't I don't think that randomness is, is part of the nature of God. So I think that the, we find the, our greatest freedom as sub-creators. Um, what I, so what I'm trying to say is there's no one right way to tell, you know, a, a, a story about God. That's kind of as far as there not being a prescription. However, look at the nature of God. Look at what he has revealed to us um, and reflect that back to the world. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. KB Hoyle is a writer of many talents and of many genres. She's the author of the teen fantasy series, The Gateway Chronicles, and the adult dystopian series, The Breeder Cycle. She has also done fairy tale retelling and science fiction fantasy. She's a columnist and staff writer at Christ and Pop Culture, and she's the co-founder, CEO, and acquisitions editor of Owl's Nest Publishers, an independent press specializing in books for adolescents. In this episode, KB, Karen, Hoyle, and I talk about the ways our cultural narratives act on us individually and in society as a whole. And we talk about stories that woo rather than argue. KB Hoyle, I'm very glad to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, so you, we got a lot to talk about. Um, I'm interested in uh, talking about, I, I want to talk about your novels. I want to get there. You've had 12 for yes. uh, young adults or middle grade, young adult, kind of both. Kind of both. Yeah. 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 We'll get to that when we get to it. Um, I'm also really interested in your your work as a columnist at, at Christ and Pop Culture. Um, mm-hmm. So you uh, have a column that comes out every other week, if I'm not mistaken, or well, it used to. Now used that to. I'm now that I'm running, Christ, um, sorry, now that I'm running Owls Nest Publishers, um, I've had to step back from regular writing for Christ and Pop gotcha. Culture. Yeah. Okay, I missed that. Um, okay, well, you're. You're, but you've done a lot of writing for that publication about the ways our cultural narratives act on us individually and in society as a whole. Yes. <laughs> okay. Tell me about that. Sounds like one of those um, descriptions <laughs> that's broad enough that you get to write about whatever you want to write about. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Or- yeah. You you caught me. <laughs> <laughs> I kind I kind of laughed when I saw that question come through because um, what happened is I came on with. Uh, as a regular writer for Christ and Pop Culture, um, oh goodness, let me think about this for a second. I, I guess uh, end of 2016, I think that was it. And um, I was just brimming over with ideas. I, I love pop culture. I love stories. I love pop culture. I love, you know, looking at the ways in which uh, stories act on us individually and as a culture. Just <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a cop out. It's a little bit of a cop out. Um, but what I noticed, I, I didn't start as a columnist. I started as a just general staff writer. And what I noticed uh, is that, you know, essentially over time, um, and most, okay, so most staff writers, you know, maybe turn out one one article a month and then, mm-hmm. you know, kind of life is, life is hard. And so it's hard to kind of meet that quota. It wasn't hard for me. <laughs> I was basically putting out, you know, two articles a month, sometimes three for the first year or so. And and so I approached them with the idea of doing a column. And I said, all of my articles have 
a similar theme. It's basically looking, you know, breaking down the 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 storytelling uh and 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 looking at, you know, the bones of of these of these stories. Mm-hmm. Um not the writing necessarily, but you know the 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 storytelling itself, what you don't see beneath the surface, because that's what I'm that's what I'm good at, you know. Uh-huh. So I said, can I just do a column that the theme is storytelling? And I remember um, Aaron Straza at the time was was my editor, and she said, okay, but we need to have a what are, what are, we need a tagline for this column. So that's what we came up with, which is again, it is very general, but um, it, it it gave me. It gave me a lot of space to move, and mm-hmm. um, I did write some articles over the years that didn't didn't fall under that that were not technically part of my column. So, uh huh. Okay. Um, so, I, I especially was interested in in a piece that you wrote about till we have faces, um, and, and and you were now I can't remember the title of that, but but it was it was sort of I mean it was really about the storytelling in you know christian storytelling as it was uh demonstrated in that in that that book and i'd, I'd love to hear you talk about that some more because you say some interesting things and one, one thing you say is that that um there's nothing prescriptive mm-hmm. about telling stories about god and that, that you're not in the business of offering prescriptions um yeah. tell me more about that yeah. Okay. So I had to go back and reread that article this morning when you brought yeah. it up, because uh, I've written a lot of articles over the years and have a hard yeah. time remembering them sometimes. Sure. But um, that is a big one for me, though. And actually, I've written several articles um, for Christ and Pop Culture that kind of hit on that theme. Because um, I like to say that, um, like like many, this is not unique to me. Um, like many Christians who who we grew up in the '90s and kind of came out of um, evangelical movement in the '90s, I'm a I'm a recovering legalist, and mm-hmm. so rules were very important to me. Rules in Christianity were very important to me. Um, I got I'm not saying that this is bad necessarily, but I got told a lot about what I could and could not do. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, especially as regarded my faith. And so when I became a writer um, of fiction, not that I even could put a pinpoint on that as when that exactly happened, I've always been writing, but um, I was very concerned about, you know, what is the right way to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, is God going to be angry with me if I if I do this wrong? You know, is there a right way to be? And I think this applies, I, I do want to say, I think this applies across um, artistic Disciplines mm-hmm. indefinitely probably applies to all of, of of life, any vocation, any calling. You know, is there a, a right, a Christian quote unquote, you know, way to do this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was start out, when it when I really started writing novels seriously professionally in my early 20s, I was really concerned about, okay, this is how we're gonna tell a Christian story. Mm-hmm. And I got really into and I won't say I'm not really into it still these days, but, you know, Christian symbolism, and color symbolism and Christian, you know, and I, I realize I, I run the risk of um, contradicting myself multiple times over. If you read my article you say, but wait, you said this in the podcast. This is such a tricky topic. Yeah. You know, even saying something like a Christian story structure. OK, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. How is a story structure a Christian thing? Um 
but I got really into all sorts of that sort of stuff. And I, to the, to the degree where I was even invited to, um, speak at a conference where I spoke on a literature writing as apologetics, like, like writing fiction as an apologetic exercise. And I did not, you know, at that time I was, I was really into that sort of thing. Yeah. And in the article, I say that something to the effect of, but when you treat storytelling as apologetics, you're, you're kind of putting teeth on this exercise. It's a very sort of, I don't, I don't know that I said this in the article, but it's, it's kind of entering into a culture war with yeah. stories. And yeah, you said you, you, there are teeth and you're bearing those teeth of the culture. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. In my early years, though, I was very, I was really into apologetics. I was very into the culture war. You know, I was trained. I was brought up in all the conferences as, you know, a teenager and all of that. But I have come to think about um, being a Christian very differently now. Mm -hmm. And the article really addresses that, that instead, I really believe that as, as storytellers in particular and as Christians, we should be wooing people to the gospel. I think about the parable of the sower a lot, the different roles that people have to do. It's not that I think apologetics are bad or unnecessary, but as a storyteller, I really think more that my my role, my vocation is to show people um, beauty, mm -hmm. um, truth, beauty, and goodness, and to woo people to say, look, do you see how beautiful Jesus is? Do you see how beautiful this, his creation is? Look at this beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that there's necessarily a prescriptive, I don't think there is a prescriptive way to do that. Um, and if there were, it would be very, um, uh, of course the word is going to fail me right now. There, there are, there are culture there think about all the beautiful diversity of cultures around the globe uh -huh. how could we say well our perspective our cultural narrative right here is the one right way to tell a story about god yeah. if, there, if there were a, uh, if there were rules about what a story should do in that regard you wouldn't need the story you just need the rules yeah, yeah. um <clears throat> Let me ask you, I want to go back to this. Uh, was it a whole conference on fiction as apologetic? No, no, no. It was, was just your talk. It was an apologetics conference, and okay. I was like the one weirdo there who was yeah. talking about fiction. And yeah. I, all these good, earnest, like young writers kept coming up to me. And the, the funny thing is, I was saying my whole presentation was like I was already like converted in my heart and mind to what I'm saying to you right now, because I really yeah. haven't changed that much. And so my presentation was kind of a bad presentation. <laughs> these young, you know, for, a, for an apologetics conference. So these young writers were coming up to me after my presentation and my room was packed full, wall to wall. And these young writers were coming up to me afterwards, clutching their notebooks going, but how do I do what you're saying? How do I write a story that feels like the Chronicles of Narnia? Like, I love what you said, but tell me how. Like they wanted the prescription. They wanted the rules. And I was just flabbergasted because I was like, I but what I said was, didn't you hear? <laughs> I already said all that, but again, you know, because what I gave them was ultimately not a prescription. 
Because I was just trying to, I was saying to them basically what I'm saying to you now, except I was kind of labeling it apologetics, except it wasn't. Uh (laughs) So Uh, it was bad and I was not invited back. Okay. All right. Well, that may be just as well. Uh, What, you know, this is not a question, it's a statement, but Christianity gives an account of everything, right? It's not just a a spiritual it's not it's not a moral code it's not a strictly spiritual you know what's i don't know i don't know what noun goes with the the adjective spiritual there um but it's an account of everything that encompasses sure morality and spirituality but it but it gives an account of how the whole universe is set up yeah and um and so to, it seems to me, we, I'd love for you to respond to this. Um, we think of faith as somehow limiting our options as creators, sub-creators, I should say. Mm-hmm. When in fact, it's an invitation to give an account for everything. Yes. I love yeah. what, yeah, Flannery Connor said um, when she's talking about um, uh, bad she was specifically talking about bad Catholic art. We can say bad Christian art more broadly. Um, she said it's it tends not to be a result of the limitations that faith put on the artist, but rather the limitations of art that the artist failed to put on themselves. As if somehow because I've got a good message, I don't have to worry about the um, the the laws that govern. Yes. Art. So I am all about. And I don't, again, people are going to say, oh, you're contradicting yourself. So I hope this doesn't sound contradictory to what I was just saying. I am all about um, art. So let's talk about, I mean, let me talk about storytelling because that's my my arena. Um, Having logos. So I think that without this trying to sound like this is prescriptive, like this is how you tell a Christian story. Um, But as far as um, Christianity actually giving us more freedom to tell a greater story Mm -hmm. and to reveal beauty is I don't believe that um, you see randomness in nature. I don't think we see randomness in God's created order. I don't, I don't think that randomness is, is part of the nature of God. So to kind of rein in my whole, Oh, there's no prescription to this at all. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not what I'm trying to say. Um, I think that, the we find the our greatest freedom as sub creators. Um, what I, so what I'm trying to say is there's no one right way to tell you know a, a, a story about God. That's kind of as far as there not being a prescription. However, the flip side of that is look at the nature of God, look at what He has revealed to us, um, and reflect that back to the world. Yeah, and within the nature of God, because because as you're saying, and that's this is a necessary corrective to, to the conversation here, right? As you're saying, God has revealed to us everything. You know, he, He's given us a revelation here. There's natural revelation. There's revelations in Scripture, and so something that I try to do as a Christian storyteller is to make sure that that logos about God is always and about the created order is always present in my stories Mm. um and again that that brings me back to loving things like the like like symbolism and particular story structures that i choose to utilize Mm -hmm. uh and 
you know, all there's, there's the, lots of things that would get very nerdy really fast. Um, but things that you also see within art and music and whatnot. Why does a song sound why do, why do certain chords sound beautiful to our ears and other chords don't? And things that are universal across cultures like that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that is, there's no, there's no one way, correct way necessarily to um, reveal those things. But what is being revealed still has to be the nature of God himself. It still has to be the truth. And that's what keeps us from being relativists. Um, and, and, and makes us actually be telling the true, true things within our stories. You talk about, uh, the nature of God. Could we also, um, do you have any problem with saying the nature of reality? Do we have to? Yes. I I mean, I think, I think it comes back to, if we have to understand the definition of, of truth, what is true, that which conforms to reality, um, and, but you have to know what reality is mm-hmm. and reality is, is, is created by, by God. So, yeah. and it, and it, even if you, even if you believe in big R reality, sometimes it's hard to know what is big R reality and what is culturally constrained or, or conditioned or, you know, I, I, um, now I can't remember which composer it was, but some composer, decided he was going to train his baby to like atonal music. I, I learned this in my, in my music appreciation class. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so whenever he gave the baby milk, whenever, whenever the baby got milk, the baby heard atonal music. So they would associate atonal music with something he liked. Um, and the kid grew up to like atonal music, but he hated milk. And, uh, <laughs> and so I feel like that's, there's, there's something there about, um, I don't know what the moral of that story is, but I think it has something to do with, you can condition people yes. to like things that aren't good for them. Yes. Um, but there's, but it somehow warps their sense of reality. Um, yeah. I don't think that was the lesson my music appreciation teacher was trying to teach, but, but I think that was just a punchline as far as he was concerned. That was just a punchline. The kid didn't like milk, but I wonder um, if, uh, as you said, in music, even though different cultures like different kinds of music, um, the idea of atonal music that says, we're just going to ignore the realities of music theory from all cultures and just sort of, do this and i may be using that term wrong it may it may be something sounds atonal but but there is what we love about music is that it 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 resolves reality into something that's also beautiful um and something mathematical that's also beautiful you know now i can remember somebody said that that the pleasure of music is a pleasure of doing math without knowing it and (laughs) and you know if there's a kind of if there's a kind of music that chooses not to uh, make us enjoy doing math without knowing it. Um, maybe that's the kind of music that that isn't that doesn't have a relationship to reality. Yeah, I I love that. You know, I think about um, I think about you. You had asked me about uh, I where I said that the 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 job vocation of a storyteller is to make people homesick for a home that they've never been to. Uh-huh. Um, which comes from C.S. Lewis, of course. The the fact of the matter is you have to actually, well, you have to believe that there's a home and you have Uh to know what that home is 
in order to point people to it. Yeah. Um, Does that count as a as a as an apologetic through fiction, or is that just something else? I guess in a way, it 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 probably is. Yeah. Um, and it here's me contradicting myself again. <laughs> Um, I just don't think about it as um, arguing. I don't yeah. eat it at, or as, as feeling like you're at war with, with uh, the culture, yeah. but in the situation where you're positioning yourself as um, uh, the other side is, is my enemy um, sort of situation, um, which is where I felt like I was being positioned for much of my youth. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of, and I still, I still love apologetics, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and I think that they really, they really served me, um, at, growing into, to being a writer, um, being, and being a good storyteller. Um, but yeah, coming out of that, that culture war mentality, um, you have to know the truth in order to, um, and why the truth is true in order to, uh, paint a beautiful picture of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to, to, to invite people to search for it. Mm-hmm. So I, I've just always wanted to, to, um, write stories that, that kind of taps into that longing that I think we all have. We all, we all have that longing for home. Yeah. Um, like I always say, I'm a Platonist and I came by it honestly through C.S. Lewis. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and and I think there the the genius of C.S. Lewis's vision of the world that is true for his fiction and his nonfiction alike, and his apologetics and his just everything is this idea. And again, it's very Platonic that that there is a reality that turns out to be better than than all our ways that we have of avoiding reality. Um, Unfortunately, we live in, in one corner of the universe, the one corner of the universe where it's not obvious yeah. what's ultimately real and true. And so we get these glimmers of reality that feel truer than than what we see with our eyeballs. And um, and so I think you're talking about, you know, fiction is uniquely situated to make us long for that reality that that seems upside down. From yeah. where we sit, and the the paradoxes of of the Christian faith turns out there, we think of paradoxes as the exception to the rule, but in in Christianity they're the rule because we live upside down, and so yes. when we get a glimpse of reality, it seems upside down. So, yep. <clears throat> so there's a kind of well, there's a kind of uh, uh, relativism for you <laughs> that <laughs> that ultimate reality, you know, relative to us seems upside down. Anyway, moving on. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about the, you keep talking about the importance of beauty, but you've also written some dystopian books. Yeah. <laughs> who, that we, we don't think of dystopian books as, as being beautiful. So <sighs> account for yourself. I know. I know. <laughs> Well, I, okay, so I wrote uh, the my dystopian series, which is called The the Breeder Cycle, because, well, a few reasons. I wanted to stretch myself. I had just finished six book fantasy series, um, 
which is called the Gateway Chronicles. And it's very, you know, Narnia-esque. It's portal fantasy. And it's, 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 it's beautiful. I mean, that sounds like I'm tooting my own horn, but it's beautiful, you know, and it's, it's, you know, it's fun. And I took a hard left turn into dystopian after that, um, finished the last book of the Gateway Chronicles. And the next week started writing this Mm -hmm. dystopian series. Um, Part of it was I, I just really wanted to challenge myself to see it's a very different writing style, but, you know, let's get into the philosophical stuff. Um, dystopian literature, I view very much as a, as a warning um, to, I, I, I see it as in, in, in all these dystopian stories, you have people who are essentially trying to Okay, now English people don't at me about this, you know, <laughs> don't come after me. I'm not, a wasn't a literature major, but, and I haven't read all the ones out there, but I see these people who are essentially trying to, you have these realities where people have, have tried to set up utopias um, and essentially man-made utopias um, that are, you know, they tend to be totally, utterly secular, devoid of God and um, they fail and they fail because they're devoid of God. They're totally secular. And it, essentially you have realities where um, people believe that they can set up paradise on earth. And so I see them as sort of this um, mirror, all these dystopian books, sorry, I see all of these dystopian books as kind of mirror real, mirrors of many, many, many societies throughout history mm-hmm. um, that did the same things and ultimately came to ruin. Um, they're, they're like Ozymandias, you know, and, and Tell I, us more about Ozymandias and just in case some of our <laughs> listeners don't know about who Ozymandias is. Oh, let's see if I still have it fully memorized. I met a traveler from an antique land who said to vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that it sculptor. Well, those passions read, um that once remain i always lose it around here yeah but you're just getting the important part you can't um, lose it now something 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 nothing <laughs> now remains yeah but um, you got this this ruined statue with the with the um with the inscription that says look on my works and yeah and that's despair. the end of it nothing beside remains um there's a pedestal. Um, I am Azimandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, you mighty and and despair. Nothing beside remains, and it's just okay. So it's a yeah. poem, right? Yeah. I used to have all me- memorized, but now I'm on the spot. Um, by Percy by Shelley. Yeah. About fictional Azimandias, who um, was a great emperor. Well, so he thought, right? And so the there's travelers, traveler finds the statue broken down in the sand. And he um reads the inscription on the plinth, and you know, it says, I am Ozymandias, king of kings. Look at my works, you mighty in despair. Okay, that's the inscription. It's it's living in there. It's living yeah, in right, my right. <laughs> and yeah, I love um, that that double meaning though. He what he meant means is look at how great I am in despair. Yes, and but there's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing left. And so, and, and that, you know, I think, I think about all the great empires of the past, you know, um, the, the Assyrians, the Sumerians, the Babylonians, the Romans, 
Um, even smaller ones like the Spartans. Um, and I use the, the Spartans as kind of a basis for some of my own dystopian story because okay. they were so brutal. Um, yeah. But yet we admire them so much, yeah. you know, 300. Main the sports the team, fire. Yeah. yeah. So and I, I know, I'm, get me started talking about this stuff. <laughs> I'm just going to go and go. But nothing beside remains. Um, the low, the bone and level sands stretch far away. So, you know, yeah, bits right. of home is coming back to me. Now. Um, when man tries to do empire, um, without now that, 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 that'll sound bad. I'm not going to say that because people will misunderstand that. <laughs> <laughs> Dystopian stories are are warnings mm -hmm. and they tend to be hyperbolic. And so they should be read that way. And I want to make that perfectly clear. Cause if you read mine, please <laughs> read it as hyperbole because <laughs> it was pretty, um, it was pretty sobering to write. I finished publishing that series. I, I had started it with my, my publisher before they went out of business and then I had to finish it. Like Ozymandias. Um, you're publishing out, you're publishing yeah, like like <laughs> um it was pretty sobering to finish it months before the world descended into a pandemic because my final book is about a pandemic wow. striking and and then i thought oh no people are going to take my book seriously as <laughs> as you know conspiracy stuff because it was just it was bad you know i didn't intend that because dystopian books should be read as hyperbole um mm. And or at least hyperbolically, you know, um, but there there are warnings about about human nature and the future and 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 the, the, what could happen as a result of unbridled human passions and human nature and we're a world without God and things like that. So yeah. that was um, kind of why I, I ended up, up writing it. And yeah. my book is, my books are ultimately about the value of, of human life. Um, and uh, something, another, another reason, reason I wrote is I wanted mine to end with hope mm -hmm. um, being about the value of human life. It's very um, unusual to read a dystopian book or series that ends on a hopeful note. Yeah. And um, I was pretty grumpy about the end of, like the Hunger Games. And <laughs> yeah, I love Brave New World, but it ends pretty depressingly. So, um, yeah. and I didn't like the ambiguity at the end of The Giver. So, yeah. I wrote one. Okay. So you wrote your own, right on. Yeah. All right. Now, besides being a writer and an author, you're also a publisher. So tell me about Owls Nest Publishing. And so, um, <laughs> I st I started uh, I co-founded Owls Nest Publishers um, with Katie Stewart, who is my lifelong um, best friend here in Wisconsin. Okay. And we opened our doors a year ago. Something that we took note of, uh, and this, we won't go into the whole long story of, of why we decided to found it, but um, something that we took note of um, is that real teens uh, are not really being served in the publishing industry today. Uh, YA publishing, YA stands for young adult. So books for young adults 
uh, are there lots of books for young adults today? YA publishing is booming, but YA publishing uh, is typically more for women than than for actual teenagers. Uh, and of course, I'm speaking uh, in generalities, but mm-hmm. um, it was really frustrating for me. I've been through a lot of career up, ups and downs, with publishing house closing. I was agented for a while, and then um, that fell through as, as well. Um, and so with a lot of career ups, ups and downs and querying, um, I've been, I've queried novels for years and years. And with all the feedback that I'd gotten on trying to query novels as as young adult novels and whatnot, I just noticed that the industry didn't really want what I was selling. Mm. And of course, that's just me. That's just my experience. Um, But what I was selling was books that had real teenagers in them. I was a classical educator for 10 years. I taught 10th graders and 8th graders. I... uh, do know, and I have teenagers myself now, but I do know what what teenagers are like. Um, and as I observed the industry and I noticed that other authors, there were lots of other authors out there who were just like me, who were trying to write books that had characters that were protagonists that were 13 years old, 14 years old, 15 years old, and were having no success mm-hmm. doing that because mm-hmm. the YA industry typically just wants um Characters that are 17 years old, but who actually don't really act like 17 years old. 17-year-olds, they they act like adults mm-hmm. walking around in 17-year-old skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reasons for that tend to be so that they can do more mature things. Uh, so that they can have more mature thought processes and emotions and whatnot. And I, we just, um, when Katie and I started to talk about this, and she has a lot of experience reviewing books. We, we just looked around and we, we thought to ourselves, there's not really a publishing house out there that, um, or an imprint that is really focused specifically on just releasing books for adolescents, um, ages eight to 18, that really, uh, has characters that reflect what these kids are really like, especially now Owl's Nest is not a Christian publishing house. Um, although Katie and I are both Christians, but, um, but we are, because we are Christians, we walk in Christian circles and we, we know too how frustrated many Christian parents are, um, with what's published, uh, in traditional publishing these days Mm -hmm. and how, um, it's just hard to find books that, uh, we see a lot of parents expressing frustration. It's hard to find books that they being published today in the last 10 years or so that they feel comfortable putting into the hands of of their kids. Yeah. Uh, so we thought we wanted to help meet that need. Great. Yeah. I, and I, as you were talking, it occurred to me, it, it really is hard to write a children's story where the children actually conduct themselves like children or teenagers yeah. conduct themselves like teens. I mean, you know, last time I read To Kill a Mockingbird, I mean, I, the the scout is supposed to be something like six in that story. I'm thinking this child does not act like a, you know, even a, of course, you know, every child in, in every protagonist of a book is precocious, but even a precocious, maybe she's not, I can't remember how, I think she's six. I don't know. She hasn't started remember. school yet. She's just starting school. So she must be about six. And uh, she does not, she does not talk like a, <laughs> like a six year old. Of course, I don't know that To Kill a Mockingbird is really 
I don't know if that would be considered kid lit or. Yeah. Well, I don't know that it is, but, but the narrator, the, the protagonist is a, a small child who doesn't yes. act like a small child. Yeah. Um, all right. Let me ask you the traditional ending question of this, of these conversations. And that is who are the writers who make you want to write KB Hoyle? Well, probably no surprise that C.S. Lewis was the first one. Yep. I can remember from a very young age, like age six. Uh-huh. Um, Is that where you and, got the idea of using two initials for your uh, name? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually, well, I, I took that from J.K. Rowling. Um, okay, there you go. Which, uh, which also, also goes on on that list. Um, I... Yeah. So, so yeah, JK Rowling, um, for sure. And Jane Austen, mm. uh, and I'm um, Tolkien. I know this is just the list of the usual suspects, but, uh, yeah. as, as I, I tell, tend to tell young people, uh, when, you know, before the pandemic, I did a lot of school visits mm-hmm. and I will always tell young people, you don't know what it was like when we were young it was very hard that, you know, the, you, there's so many fantasy authors now, but when we were young, it's like, okay, I'm going to reread the Chronicles of Narnia again <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> for George McDonald, you know? So, uh, were you reading George McDonald when you were little? Oh yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. I'm, yeah. I come, I come from a, a family that had, we had books on books on books on books. Yeah. So okay. yeah, George McDonald as well. Um, yeah. Well, good. All right, KB Hoyle, thank you for being here. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Hope we can talk again soon. Thank you so much. I really had a a good time, and thank you for letting me ramble. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.